Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hey, Houston, the Challenger has landed. Houston Station, uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Phasers are set to stun for another Space Boffins podcast with Richard Hollingham and Sue Nelson. And we're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and this time we'll be exploring strange new worlds, hearing about a Swedish spaceport and celebrating the first American spacewalk. And I promise no more Star Trek puns. Our guests are space scientist and educator Dr Sheila Kanani, who helped build an instrument for the Cassini mission during her PhD. That's pretty cool. And the award-winning science writer, astronomy journalist Dr Stuart Clark. His latest books are novels set around the times of greatest change in our understanding of the universe. So when was that? What sort of period are we talking about? We're essentially talking about the 17th century. People um, like Galileo, uh, Johannes Kepler, and they're moving on into Isaac Newton. We'll be talking about Kepler a little later on. Now, Sheila, you've been studying this stuff. You just got your PhD. You teach space science. I try to. Is there still stuff we don't get about the universe? There's stuff that baffles you about the universe, be honest. Yeah, definitely. If you start to think about anything a bit too hard, it starts to be a bit mind-boggly, which is why I particularly like planetary science, because it's a lot more tangible. You know, we can hopefully visit some of these planets and we can certainly see them with our own eyes. Is mind-boggly a technical term? It's very technical. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. Right, well, mobile phones, Okay, We've all got them, and they have to put up with quite a lot, particularly mine, I have to say. I've dropped my mobile phones on concrete, uh, left them in the sun. I've put not one but two through a washing machine, and remarkably, they all still worked (laughs) afterwards. So how about shooting one up? into space. Well, that's what a UK team led by lecturer Dr Chris Bridges from the University of Surrey and engineer Sean Kenyon from Surrey Satellite Technology Limited will be doing. Put together by volunteers, the Strand One satellite has at its heart a mobile phone. I went to meet Chris and Sean and asked Sean first about the thinking behind it. Mobile phones have come on leaps and bounds since the massive weight training things that you saw in the 80s. So, you know, you've got this thing in your pocket that's actually got the same processing capability as a supercomputer back in the 1970s. So all of that electronics has been invested in by the mobile phone companies. It's got billions and billions of dollars of R&D in it. So we're just trying to make use of all of that research and see if those electronics work in space. Is this, Chris, just just a stunt? There's this catch-22 in sort of space systems and we won't fly it unless it's been flown. And so you end up in this situation whereby if there's a new technology, how do they know that it's safe? There's no harsher environment that we certainly know of than space. And so trying to leverage all of the uh, things that you have on mobile phones is, is deadly important. You know, these have been designed to sit on the dashboard of a car in Texas where it hits 80 degrees. And they're also designed for if in case you drop it down your toilet. And it's got survival, these things. And it's exactly the same for satellites. They're designed for harsh environments. 
I think it's worth noting that we have actually tested this mobile phone already. So we've mm. stuck it in a vacuum chamber. Yeah. It's perfectly fine. Didn't bat an eyelid, proverbially. And, um, yeah, we've stuck it in an oven, literally my oven at home. We've also stuck it in my freezer at, in my kitchen at home. Didn't bat an eyelid. This is really decent electronics that you can throw around, and it's perfectly happy. So, yeah, why not see if it works in space? And what are you going to do with it? If you think about a mobile phone, it's got sensors on it, we all use for gaming, it's got the comms, it's got a camera. Apart from solar panels, this thing pretty much is a satellite, okay? So being able to test all these components individually is something that we're looking to do, and actually qualifying that and saying to the space community as a whole, hey, why don't we consider using these parts? Because they come now, um, people buy phones in the tens of thousands, millions, um, and they throw away electronics, Can we not use these things for different environments and different applications? So what's it going to do? So if we have our way, other than sort of qualifying it and sort of getting it working and collecting what we call the health of satellite, the telemetry, uh, we'll then be starting to run experiments on it. And so we ran a a competition uh, together with uh, the guys at SSTL and to run people's apps. And, you know, people can fly their apps. If you're going to have a phone in space, what would you get it to do? And so we've got uh, postcards from space. Yeah. We have one called uh, Screen, which is actually seeing whether or not you can detect the vibrations um, of playing videos and playing audio sounds. We actually have people screaming. Oh, you didn't um, do that enough justice. Uh, well, you go for it. Go on. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, it's, um, it was a wonderful idea by a group of students at the University of Cambridge. And they basically went, in space no one can hear you scream. Or can they? We're going to upload lots of videos of people screaming play them on the loudspeaker of the mobile phone and actually at the same time record on the microphone of the mobile phone if we can hear those screams. Yeah, so the chances are we probably won't, but, you know, you never know. The other apps um, are ones called like postcards from space as well. If you're going to take a picture and you want a postcard from space and we're flying over, I don't know, where do you want to be? Hawaii? Paris, yeah. I don't know, pick a location. And then you can, you can essentially get your picture down um, of you from that. Um, and it will tell you all about the satellite at that location and time. It strikes me the one thing you're not using it for is, is as a phone. Well, yeah, I mean, the roaming charges from space are a bit high. <laughs> uh, so we're not actually going to stick a SIM card in there, and um, the, the frequencies are all wrong. We are going to use the Wi-Fi, though. That will be an experiment. Obviously, it's a, quite a low-power mobile phone Wi-Fi, so we might not be able to pick it up from Earth. But there is another bit of electronics inside the satellite that can pick up Wi-Fi. So it will be a wireless intra-satellite link. That will be quite an interesting experiment in terms of much larger satellites where actually the the weight of all the cables is not insignificant. So if we can show that actually you can start using wireless inside big satellites, then you're saving a lot of mass. And also it makes uh, assembly really quicker. So if you can just plock it in... Um, and get things working over. Plock it in. Plock it in. Why not? <laughs> okay. This te- technical talk. That is technical, a technical term. Technical term. Yeah. Then you can. Then you'll be able to. Uh, you'll be able to do that. You know, be able to assemble things much quicker. What about the launch? Then you've got this satellite. You say you can build them quickly. You can build them cheaply. But how do you get it up there? You're not building a rocket to go with it. No. Uh, What we generally do is something called, and this is a really technical term, is piggybacking. Basically, we're looking and we might have found another satellite, a very big satellite that's been paid for. They've bought the rocket and to offset some of their costs, they're happy for much smaller satellites to piggyback on the same rocket and hitch a ride. 
So do you know when this one's going to be launched? Um, yeah, we think it will be going up in December this year. On on what? Can't tell you yet. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Is there now a sense of excitement about this project? I mean, actually, have you got a satellite yet? Have you built it yet? Um, well, we keep building it and then taking it apart, you know, tweaking a little bit, then building it up again, finding something else that an interesting feature and then taking it apart and then building it again. Um, so we have all the bits <laughs> and excitement is a good word to use for the, for what, how the team's feeling at the moment. Um, sheer panic might be another phrase or, um, yeah, panic, panic is one urgency. urgency. What other words? I need a thesaurus. We need to, we need <laughs> some sort of other word system that we can use to describe this, but it's been a culmination for over two years, certainly for Sean and I, since the beginning when we first came up with it on paper to see it come through, have a, a team that we've been really lucky to work with and that's given us all of their time for nothing, and that they can say, yeah, you know what, I did this on this little piece uh, of a satellite, um, and it's made this, this massive impact. Chris Bridges and Sean Kenyon talking about Strand One. I love the little bickering that was going on. They have incidentally been described as a, an old married couple. Uh, Strand One, by the way, stands for, wait for this, Surrey Training Research and Nano Satellite Demonstrator, joining a long list of tortured space acronyms. I think it's pretty exciting. What do you guys think? I think it's brilliant. Any time that you can uh, take something simple and do something amazing with it, absolutely fantastic it reminds me a little of the way that amateur astronomers started to use webcams to get around the blurring in the earth's atmosphere and take these fantastic pictures i think what's exciting about it is it's possible if you set out to build a satellite that you can actually get it into space now yeah this is exactly the kind of thing that we need we don't want um, so much to have you know government spending billions just to put something into space we need people to innovate and let the governments do the really deep space stuff. And Sheila, this is just the sort of thing that will inspire people, isn't it? Yeah, it makes space and, well, space travel eventually a lot more accessible. It means that um, students in schools can get directly involved with things like this. Everyone has a mobile phone, and if it's that easy to just sort of strap it to a helium balloon and send it off into space and see the pictures coming back and, you know, the next level of that, I think it's a, a brilliant idea. What I liked was hearing that there was a reference there to the Cambridge Space Flight Society, and we have actually featured them and their attempts to scream in space on one of our uh, previous podcasts, is the fact that they used um, quite a, a, apart from their technical terms, that rival yours, actually. Plonk. Plonk, plonk, plonk was a great one, I think it was Plocketin. Yeah. Oh, Plocket. Oh, yes, you're right. Plocketin, yes, yeah. as opposed to mind-boggling. And the fact that... Um, their attempts to test their phones put mine to shame, really, because they, they managed to drop it in the toilet. <laughs> they wanted to put it in the toilet, which that's the one thing I haven't done yet. Uh, I should also say they're working on another one, which is Strand 2, and that means connecting satellites in space. And we're going to feature an interview on that with Chris and Sean in the, the next podcast. Oh, great. That's going to be hilarious. Anyway, you're listening to the Space Boffins podcast. Now, NASA's planet-hunting mission, Kepler, has notched up over 70 confirmed planets since its launch three years ago. It's focused on a specific region of the Milky Way galaxy and that number is likely to get even higher in the future because the number of candidate planets it's identified is over 2,000. Now, the mission is named after the German astronomer Johannes Kepler, who's one of the main characters of Stuart's first novel and his trilogy, The Sky's Dark Labyrinth, along with Galileo and the other astronomers at the time. Now, we've got this mission named after Kepler 
actually we've just heard from people from um, SSTL, sorry, Satellite Technology. They've recently called their new sort of huge buildings and clean room the Kepler building. So what is it about this man that's ensured we remember his name? Kepler is utterly extraordinary as a human brain and as as a, a person of drive and motivation. Um, he, is, he is, I think, under-remembered, but starting to become better remembered. He's the first person that distills a celestial phenomenon into mathematics. And remember that this was the time in history when the movement of the planets was thought to be um, unintelligible to the human mind, the puny human mind. That was God's realm. The planets were moved by angels, and yet Kepler managed to distill decades and decades worth of observations into just three lines of mathematics, three mathematical laws that precisely showed how all the planets moved. It's the, it's the time in history where you suddenly realise that as an analytical tool, the human brain is peerless. It's the blue touch paper for the scientific revolution. It's also, though, about mathematics, isn't it? It's how you can sort of explain the world. You can explain planets, Absolutely stars, right. going out in terms of, like you say, three lines of mathematics, because exactly. Kepler's laws, you remember from school. And I remember the, the same feeling as you, is like, what? <laughs> so you can tell just by this? Yes, it's, it's, it's utterly extraordinary, and it moves on a concept that a lot of um, medieval philosophers and architects had as well, which was about geometry. Uh, they could see shapes everywhere in the world and in the universe. So they thought at first that geometry was the key to everything, that if you, if you made the foundations of a cathedral, for example, in the right shape, your cathedral would stand up. Of course, that's half right, you need to do the calculations as well. You need to know about that. And that's what Kepler did. He started from the position of geometry in which he said that all the planets move on elliptical orbits, not circular ones. And then he developed the, the pure mathematics to understand that motion. Did Kepler ever see any planets beyond our solar system or was the technology just not there. Yeah, no way did he. In fact, um, we didn't even um, know that um, Uranus, Neptune and Pluto existed at, at times. It was just naked-eye planets. One thing that is telling, however, is that in the time in which he developed these laws, Galileo discovered the moons of Jupiter and Kepler discovered that his laws were capable of describing the motion of the moons of Jupiter as well slightly modified but they were they held true there as well is this what made you decide to bring the two of them uh, together for, for for a novel it's interesting to know why why fictional why not just write biographies about them yes one of the things that i wanted to do was to try to uh, portray that unique thrill that you get when you study nature. When you are a scientist, when you're thinking in an analytical way, doesn't mean you're coldly rational about it. You can be utterly um, passionately devoted to discovering these truths and proving that they're true. It's not a question of just holding a belief. It's actually about being able to um, demonstrate the truth of them. And 
I read a lot of biographies of these people. and I read that you did five years' research. Is I, that true? Yeah, five years' intensive research um, to, uh, to, to, to get this um, going, reading their letters to each other to try and understand a bit about their And was that to get a sense of, yes, their personality? So did you feel you knew them then as people as opposed to their record of achievements. Yes, and that was the key point about writing them as novels. I wanted to show these people, uh, or I wanted to show these astronomers as people, you know, human beings that had lives outside of science and outside of astronomy, and how that influenced them, what they did. Nobody works in a vacuum. And so the, um, the family and the societal pressures cultural and religion, that uh, pressures that were always on them all the time, fed into what they did and drove them. Sometimes it made their life easier. A lot of times it made their lives harder. Well, here we are, hundreds of years later. He's got his name attached to the NASA mission, Searching for Other Planets. Sheila, you know, there are quite a few ways of searching for yeah, extra really. solar planets at the mm-hmm. moment. Which one is producing the, the sort of best results? Well, clearly the Kepler mission has been very successful. And what that does is measure... The brightness of stars, um, it looks at, like you said, certain patches in the galaxy and measures how bright the stars are and tries to measure if there's ever any dimming. And the dimming in this brightness indicates that a planet has crossed the front of the star, um, hence lowering the brightness. Um, And this has been so effective in finding, like you said, over 2,000 extrasolar planets. There are other ways as well. For example, I worked with a radio mission looking at pulsars. And pulsars are atomic clocks. They tick very precisely every however many seconds for that pulsar. But if you can measure a change in time of that clock, that could indicate that there is a planet orbiting the pulsar. However, that's not as um, a popular method for looking for extrasolar planets because nobody's interested or as interested in a planet that is orbiting a star that emits a very um, strong radio wave because that could indicate that there couldn't possibly be life on that planet. So that's not as popular but certainly another method of, uh, of looking for planets. Do you think we get a bit obsessed, Sheila, with this, this search for, for planets? Definitely. Not just planets but Earth-like planets. Over the years when we've been looking for extrasolar planets, we often see big planets, sort of Jupiter or neptune size extrasolar planets. And the quest for Earth or Earth, well, Earth 2 is um, getting bigger and broader and it, it sometimes gets a, a bit of a media frenzy, um, for example, at the end of last year when we did find a, an Earth 2 But if you actually read into the maths behind what we found, it could be Earth size, it could be Neptune size, it could have a temperature of Earth, it could have a temperature of minus 200 degrees. It all depended on a lot of speculation and a lot of mathematical modelling. What do you think Kepler would have made of of this obsession? He wouldn't have objected to trying to find another Earth. He wrote perhaps one of the first works of science fiction in which he described life on the moon. Really? Before? I always thought sort of, you know, yeah, Jules, Jules Verne, Verne and yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, no. He wrote about what it would be like to live on the moon with one face always um, facing the Earth and one face always facing out into the universe. I suppose, yeah. Sheila, finding somewhere that could support life would change our perceptions because I think we're still, yeah, we know that the universe doesn't rotate around the Earth, but in our minds we kind of think that, don't we? The number of things that have come together to make us here today, not just being the right distance away from our sun and being orbiting the right type of star, but also having planets like Jupiter in our solar system that can um, absorb some of the bigger meteorites. And, and there's just so much coincidence and so much sort of 
fate or whatever you want to call it that that does make an Earth too very tempting, but it would certainly change our place in the universe, yeah. So you don't think there is one? It's not that I don't think there is one. I think that it might... It's not pointless looking for one, but I think it's a bit egotistical that we are looking for an Earth and when we're looking for aliens, we're only ever looking for aliens like us. Who who says that, that they have to be like us? That ties in really with your point, doesn't it, Stuart? To an extent it does. Um, the point for looking for an Earth too is because you assume that life developed on the earth through some kind of process that could be repeated again it wasn't miraculous so people kind of look for an earth too in the hopes that the same conditions will hopefully give us another more life however i agree that we should widen the net let's just be more open about this and just investigate everything with the same level of enthusiasm Great. Well, I've got one little connection between the two of you that I discovered. I know that um, the second part of your trilogy, Stuart, came out earlier this year, and this one looked at um, the work of Isaac Newton, other contemporaries at the Royal Society at the time, including Edmund Halley, who has had a famous comet named after him. And, Sheila, I've, I've watched you on YouTube <laughs> oh make a comet. This is a yeah. tenuous connection, isn't it? it? Is. You worked hard at I that. I didn't say yeah. how close it was. I just said there was a connection. Oh. And you've made a comet in the classroom, yeah, I so saw. It, it's nice to be able to go into classrooms and not just talk at the children, but get them to, to interact and to do things as well. And being a planetary scientist, it can be kind of difficult to actually do planetary science in the classroom. And we don't always just want to be looking at computer screens or through telescopes. And making a comet, it's its kind of a tenuous experiment because basically you just mix whatever you want in a bowl with some dry ice and make a giant snowball. But it is actually quite accurate. Oh, but you use nail... Was it nail varnish uh, remover or yeah, something? Yeah, you can use acetone, ammonia, vodka... Methane, so you can ask. I love the slug of vodka. That was your (laughs) ethanol, wasn't it? Yes, that was ethanol. Excellent. But yeah, it is actually quite accurate because we have measured bits of comets and we do know up to a point what they're made from. So being able to make something or an an analogy of something in space in the classroom is quite an eye opener. And everyone likes playing with dry ice anyway because of the the smoke (laughs) that. You can't go wrong with dry ice, can you? No. No, (laughs) Looks like science. Yeah, it's great. Well, just over a month ago, I was at a space tourism conference at the Royal Aeronautical Society in London. Now, a few years back, the whole idea of space tourism was a bit of a joke, but today these companies are serious. We heard from the major players in our last podcast, but if you've got a space plane to fly, you need a spaceport. One of the countries keen to offer its services to space tourism ventures is Sweden. And Spaceport Sweden is north of the Arctic Circle at Karuna. It's an area that's been used for more than 50 years to launch sounding rockets. I spoke to the CEO of Spaceport Sweden, Karin Nilsdotter, and asked her what evidence she had that companies wanted to operate from there. We've been working together with the new operators of this industry since the XPRIZE took place in 2004. So a close dialogue with Virgin Galactic, with XCorp, with Armadillo, with Maston, but also Space Adventures as a, as a uh, tour operator in the space industry, if you like. And we know there is a, a large segment in Europe, but also across the world, that want to experience what we can offer. And we have a unique opportunity enabling customers to fly and see the northern lights or the midnight sun. And and our spaceport is located above the Arctic Circle, which, again, is a, is a unique proposition that we want to capitalise upon. So the idea really is you would fly from your spaceport into space and see the northern lights from space. Exactly, correct. 
What would that be like then? What's the experience you offer? Sell me the experience. <laughs> well, I think, you know, the experience starts already perhaps when you are looking to buy a ticket, you know, preparing to go into space, do the training to simulate weightlessness or the actual space ride in itself. Then as you arrive at Spaceport Sweden, you, you will have a couple of days training, you know, what team building and decision making and, you know, the simulation of the movements that you will, depending on which vehicle you're flying with. And then if you fly wintertime, you know, you will be perhaps staying at the Ice Hotel or one of our ski resorts, coming to the spaceport, have the whole experience of, you know, takeoff, being part of, of this space environment through our portal, you know, our gateway to space. And then, you know, the whole ride takes about an hour and a half altogether, flying in above you know, the clouds into the aurora and see the stunning lights that they are created through these explosions from the sun uh, that meets the atmosphere. And then again, coming back down and, and be able to celebrate with your mates and your family in this environment. Now, you can't guarantee, of course, the northern lights will be there when people fly. Also, you can't guarantee the weather. A lot of the space tourism companies, well, all of them actually, are setting up in either desert regions or areas where the weather is very predictable. It's sunny, it's blue sky. I mean, you know, be fair, Sweden hasn't got that. We haven't got that, but we have been a launch site, you know, since 60 years back, both for sounding rockets and also for companies coming to test in this um, Arctic climate. And we, we have a very good uh, clear sky. It's a very low um, cloud base and also downfall. So, yes, no, we don't have the sun and the beach, but that's not our offering either. You know, we're more an outdoor destination, uh, offering the natural space phenomena of, of uh, the northern lights of the midnight sun, and also combining it with the other outdoor activities that we have, the Sami, the indigenous people of Sweden. So I think it's the whole package and, and giving customers an opportunity to come and experience that already now and be part of, of you know, an industry of the future. Karen Nilsdotter, CEO of Spaceport Sweden. So, so what do we think? Well, I like the sound. I wanted to go there immediately. <laughs> she sold it well. As soon as I win the lottery, that's where my mm. money's going. Although I'd rather do a £10 million stint on the ISS if I actually won the lottery. That would be cool. Yes, I think an, internet, <laughs> I think, uh, an orbital flight would be good, Stuart. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I get seasick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why not? The... Um, second part of our series now that's celebrating Gemini, the mid-60s missions which made the moon landings possible. Now this one, Gemini 4, was launched in June 1965 and is particularly special as it featured the first American to walk in space. The commander of Gemini 4 was James McDivitt, the spacewalker Ed White, who you can just about hear at the end of this sequence. This is Gemini Control. Four hours and 24 minutes into the mission, the Hawaii station has just established contact, and the uh, pilot, Jim McDivitt, advises the cabin has been depressurized. It is reading zero. We are standing by for a go from Hawaii to open that hatch. Surgeon, you ready to have him get out? Roger, flight, we're go. He's got some uh, nice elevated rates, which we expected, and uh, he's, he's really speeded it up, but he looks great. Let's go. Okay. Hawaii, Houston flight. Houston flight, Hawaii, Capcom, go. Tell him we're ready to have him get out when he is. Roger, understand. Gemini 4, Houston, Capcom. Who's calling the Gemini 4? Houston, Capcom. Uh, has, he, has he egressed? He's on. 
This is Gemini Control, Houston. Gus Grissom has just established contact with the spacecraft. McDivitt confirms that White did leave the spacecraft. He says it looks great. He's outside working his maneuvering unit. And Jim is quite exuberant about the performance that he's witnessing at this time. A rather indistinct Ed White outside the Gemini 4 capsule. Be fair, he was on the American first spacewalk. And Mission Control, after that, had quite a struggle persuading him to get back inside. <laughs> uh, Ed White, uh, he died uh, only a few years later in the 1967 Apollo fire. James McDivitt went on to command Apollo 9, which is a 10-day Earth orbital flight to test the complete Apollo system. So, in their ways, both made a massive contribution, and certainly through the Gemini mission, to the success of the Apollo moon landings. I do find these these Gemini missions just inspiring. Yeah, definitely. The Gemini, the Apollo, all of those. I mean, I was too young to watch anything on, on the TV the first time round, but the reason I went into physics was because of the space age and the space era and we really need a new one and maybe space tourism can can do just that i don't know yes i think that uh we're going to have this same level of inspiration these same feelings surface all over again when we have the commercial space flight and suddenly it's now not about huge government endeavours. It's about anyone People. that's doing it. Yeah. What I like about hearing these, and we're going to continue to feature these Gemini missions, these were kind of the forgotten missions mm. of the mid-60s. They were really exciting at the time, but then Apollo eclipsed the whole lot. Yes, that whole Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, great times. Let's do it all again commercially. Thank you very much to our guests, space science communicator Dr Sheila Kanani and science writer and author Dr Stuart Clark, who's... Uh, the Sky's Dark Labyrinth trilogy out now, and the second one just recently published, The Sensorium of God. And that's the Space Boffins podcast, produced by Boffin Media in partnership with The Naked Scientists. We're supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and with a grant from the UK Space Agency. We'll be back in a month, and over the next couple of months we'll be switching our hosting over completely to the naked scientists so if you subscribe to the podcast on itunes or wherever do switch to the the naked scientist feed as they say apparently it's called a feed <laughs> uh, do follow us on twitter and facebook as well just search for space boffins i'm richard hollingham and i'm sue nelson thanks for listening